Thanks for joining us again for a Backyard Astronomer interview. I'm here today with Colonel Pat Bledsoe. He is a pilot of the SR-71, commonly known as the Blackbird. And he has a really interesting story of how he got to that place and, and some of the stories that he has from flying that plane and other planes. I've known Pat for eight or eight or ten years now through the Prescott Astronomy Club. And I first heard his presentation a few years ago, and I was super intrigued. And I really wanted to have a, just a real casual conversation about his life and how he got to that point. So, Pat, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. We, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come in and talk to us. Planes aren't necessarily what everybody thinks of when we talk astronomy and space. Oftentimes we're thinking space shuttles, but the SR-71 is, is essentially the highest that you can fly without being in a space shuttle and essentially wearing a space suit. But that was a little bit further in your career. You were born in Arkansas, right? That's correct. I was Born in a small town called Fordyce, Arkansas. And was there a moment in your, your childhood or your upbringing, uh, a moment, a teacher, a class, an event, that gave you a passion for flight or space or both? Well, I got a very early introduction to airplanes because my dad volunteered for the Air Force as soon as World War II started. Okay, so he was a pilot? And he, because of so many people were volunteering, it took several months before they actually called him up to active duty to start training as a pilot, yes. Wow. So during the war, he flew uh, primarily B-17s, but I suppose it was because he was a little bit older and had a, was married with a child that they kept him in the U.S. as an instructor, so he, he kept volunteering for overseas, but uh, finally got an assignment to uh, check out on the B-29 and go to the Far East. But he was about halfway through training when they dropped the atom bomb and that stopped off training, so he never so he was done overseas. <laughs> yeah. So he did a lot of flying, but domestically mostly. Yeah, yeah. And so you grew up, did he continue flying planes as you were a child? Did he no, have he did a not. personal plane? No, or? I, he got out of the uh, Air Force at the end of the war and we went back to my hometown and... Uh, uh, he had several jobs before he bought his own uh, SO gas station, and that was his primary business from then on. And you were born in 1939. Do you recall any of his flight training or any of the war? Is that an early memory for you? Yeah, I can remember. Uh, you know, After he finished his training, uh, he went through the aviation cadet program, and you were not allowed to have your family with you then, you know. As soon as he graduated and became a second lieutenant and a, and a pilot, then the family got back together. My mom and I went out to join him, and we lived in two or three different bases out west during the war. Uh, Las Vegas Army Airfield, which is now called Nellis Air Force Base. Okay. And uh, Hobbs, New Mexico, I remember that one. And uh, also... Uh, at the end of the war, we were at Laredo, Texas, where it was, which was the training base for the B-29. He was checking out in that. And then one of the things I remember about Laredo is when uh, President Roosevelt died, they had a huge uh, memorial service and a flyover that looked like several hundred airplanes. Of course, wow. It may have been 40 or 50 coming back multiple times, but it was impressive to me as a 
five-year-old. It, it was a crystallized moment in your memory. <laughs> yeah. Did your dad ever take you up? No. No? He, he was allowed to take my mother up and train her type airplane, so she got a couple of rides in a T-6 trainer, I think. And when, when did you decide that was your path? Well, probably while I was in uh, grade school or certainly by the time I was in high school. And so you graduate high school, and then it was within the next 18, 20 months you were joining up for the, oh, the Air Force? Oh, actually, when I graduated from high school, I got a Navy ROTC scholarship and went to the University of New Mexico. Uh, and uh, after two years... And that and a midshipman cruise on an aircraft carrier, I decided that the flying looked like fun, but living on a boat was not for me. So I dropped out of college and joined the Air Force as an aviation cadet, which you could do then. Is you know, it didn't not require a degree; you just had to be able to pass the what they call the AFOQT, the I guess it was Air Force Officer Qualification Test, is what that stood for. Is that like a combined physical and mental and educational comp? Well, no, this was the written exam. You also had to pass the physical, of course. So I managed to pass both of those and got accepted in the Air Force as an aviation cadet, which was a 15-month program, a combination of officer training and pilot training. And what was the first plane that you flew in that instance? It was the T-34. Okay. Which was a... Uh, Basically, a two-seat tandem version of the early uh, Beechcraft Bonanza. Okay. The, the cockpit opened in flight, you know, and the pilot sat in the front seat and the instructor in the back seat. So it was a fun little airplane to fly, but it gave you a good introduction to all the basics. You know, it was it had retractable landing gear and all that. So okay, so, so a l- little more than a hobby plane. Yeah. <laughs> so we got. 27 hours in the T-34, and then went right into the T-37, which is a twin-engine jet, and got about 100 hours in that. And then after the the T-37 phase, then we went to the T-33, which was the trainer version of the F-80. Okay. Which was our the U.S.'s first operational jet fighter here. And got about another 100 hours in the, uh, in the T-33. How long does it take you to get 100 hours in a plane? Uh, well. You're probably flying a lot those yeah, days. Yeah. And uh, it was about six months. Okay. So, yeah, the whole, the whole program was three months of pre-flight training, which was just basic military training and PT and that kind of stuff, you know, and some ground school um, flying subjects. And did you have time for personal life at this time, or were you one hundred percent dedicated? Okay. Yeah, you had. You were only allowed to go off base, you know, if you were. Uh, if you were doing okay, you could get a pass to go off base on the weekends. But the rest of the time, it was full time military and power training. A lot of classroom and uh, actual flight training. Okay. Back then, we we had simulators, but. Not nearly to the extent they have nowadays. So it was all actual. You weren't inside a VR headset? and No, no, nothing (laughs) like that. It was all, you know, the real thing. (laughs) And everything was was analog. You didn't have digital displays on things. This was 
no computers available. Yeah, this is back before the, the computer age. This is still pre-moon landing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we're talking 19... Well, I actually started pre-flight pilot training in uh, December of 59 and graduated in March of 61. So we're like Eisenhower into Kennedy era. Yeah. Okay. And uh, it was very competitive because your assignment... Depending on what was available, and then uh, the choice went by class standing, so it was very competitive to get, try to get the assignment you wanted. You know. So it, it is like Top Gun in the old movie. People are are vying to be the best in the class. Oh, You're yeah, jockeying, yeah. yeah. Right, sure. So I ended up pretty high in the class, and I got a good assignment uh, to be an instructor in the T thirty three. So uh, you know, my first base after pilot training was. Uh, well, first, you had to go through instructor training, of course. And that was at Randolph Air Force Base, Texas, you know, just outside of San Antonio. Then I went to Moody Air Force Base, Georgia, for my first uh, real assignment. And this is this is still peacetime, right? This is pre... Yeah. Well, except the... Uh, correct involvement, uh, official yeah. involvement. Very shortly after that, the, we got into the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know? Okay. Yeah. But... Uh, and when I got to Moody Air Force Base, uh, they were just in the process of transitioning from a, an interceptor training base to a pilot training base. So uh, they didn't have any students ready for the T-33 yet. They were all still in the T-37 phase. I also should mention that about this time was when the Air Force did away with their uh, contract primary training bases, which were run by civilians. Oh, interesting. And so it was all Air Force. From then on. So prior to that, it, it was yeah, civilian so, contractors like the plane yeah. companies? Yeah, so I, I went through primary pilot training in the T-34 and the T-37 at uh, Bartow Air Base, Florida, which was one of the civilian contract bases. Interesting. And then shortly, about the time they phased out the air, Aviation Cadet Program also closed down all the contract flying schools and became all Air Force. Okay. So the only contract part after that was the manufacturer of the plane and the initial testing? Yeah. Or Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was an interesting period because, they, like I said, they were phasing out the Aviation Cadet Program at the time. I was lucky I got in just in time because I was in Class 61F and 61G was the last... Right, right at the 11th hour. Yeah. So it worked out well for me. And then you were flying an 01 aircraft right after that. Well, no, not right after that. I spent four years as an instructor in training command. Okay. You know, teaching new students how to fly. As I mentioned, they were not quite ready for T-33 training when I first got to Moody. The first class... Their pilots was not ready for that yet. They were still on T-37, and they needed more T-37 instructors, so I never actually had a student in the T-33. I went right into the T-37 and and got checked out as an IP in that and spent several months teaching students, to, American students, to fly in the T-37. But also about that time, we were building up what they call uh, the MAP 
training that stood for Mutual Assistance Program, where we were teaching students primarily from third world countries to fly airplanes as part of, you know. Okay, not primary allies like England or France or. No, I'm talking about students from Latin America, Africa, Middle East. Wow. Stuff like that. So they needed more instructors for that. So I, after just nine months in the T-37, I had to transition to the T-28, which the Air Force was no longer using for American students at that point. Was, but we were training somebody else in our prior technology. Yeah, students from Latin America. We even had a couple of them from Afghanistan. And, uh, Strategic. Libya. But well over half of them were from Vietnam. The writing was on the wall. Yeah, we were training training students from Vietnam to go back home and defend their country. And uh, the difficulty in that was, of course, was the language problem. These kids all theoretically spoke English before they came to the U.S., but some of them were okay. Some of them needed more instruction, so in a few cases we'd have to send them back down to Lackland Air Force Base for more English language training before they could proceed in, in pilot training. Going to fly a plane and, and learn how to fly a plane isn't the same as going to Mexico and knowing how to ask for tacos or the bathroom. No, no. You need a little, a little bit, bit more complicated. better understanding yeah. of the language. Exactly. Okay. In fact, I remember a funny episode. We had uh, about four students, Vietnamese students in one class, that just did not know enough English they, to get by, so they sent the four of them back down to Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And when they came back about six weeks later, then they did okay. But I was asking one of them, well, how did you guys get from, because I found out that they bought an old clunker of a car between the four of them and drove it to San Antonio and back, you know, from South Georgia. So well, how did you get to, to San Antonio, you know, your linguist, your English language skills were pretty limited, and the kid told me, well, you only have to know two things. I said, oh, yeah, what's that? Fill it up, hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> so just like going to Mexico, they knew how to get food, and they knew how to get fuel to get to where they were going. <laughs> right. So we thought that was pretty right. But overall, the Vietnamese kids did very well. Now, did you go up in the planes with them? Oh, yeah. yeah. We, were fly- we were flying. We were instructing them in the T-28. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the, the average U.S. student took 10 or 12 hours before he was ready to solo. Well, most of the Vietnamese kids took about 20, because, mainly because of the language problem. But some of you know, once they got comfortable with the language, they did just fine. Now, do you know, were the, the planes that they were going to be flying converted into their language eventually? Or were they flying American planes in English? So they were reading English control panels? and Yes. Yeah. Right. Wow. Because most of the airplanes they were going to be flying when they went back home were American airplanes. So nobody was going through and switching out the dials? No, 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 no. Okay. But like I said, most of these kids were, were better educated than the average uh, Vietnamese of that age, and most of them did speak passable English. In a few cases, we had to send them back to for a little extra English training. A little bit extra. Go. Yeah. But they did very well.
Now, did you ever stay in contact with any of those individuals? I did, yeah. In fact, a, a very interesting episode with one of them, a kid named uh, Wen Ba Fook. He was uh, one of the better students, so they gave him a assignment to the Sky Raider, you know, the A1, when he went back. And uh, those kids, had, you know, there were very few of them did that. Most of them started off as, you know, co-pilots, C-47 or something like that. But the, the very best got to go right into fighters, you know, wow. fighter bombers. So, but they got their initial checkout in the airplane with the Navy down in Pensacola, and then they went back to Vietnam, and uh, they got their uh, training there with the, the American Air Commando Squadron, who's flying the same airplanes. But uh, when had a very unfortunate incident on his very first training mission back in Vietnam with an American instructor, they got shot down. The American instructor was rescued, but Wen was captured by the Viet Cong. Oh, wow. Down in the southern part of South Vietnam. And uh, almost exactly a year later, I arrived in Vietnam to be a Ford Air Controller. And I was at, uh, you know, doing the, I had to do my end process in there in Saigon at Tonsonoon Air Base, and they sent me down to Canto, which was down in the Delta Four Corps headquarters to get briefed by the Corps ALO, you know, air liaison officer and intelligence briefings and all that kind of stuff at the Corps headquarters building. And between briefings, I was standing outside on the veranda uh, drinking a Coke at a Coke machine out there. And as I was standing there drinking my Coke, the South Vietnamese Army Jeep drove up with a guy in uniform driving it. And somebody in black pajamas, you know, like you see the pictures of this, the Viet Cong guerrillas, and barefoot. And they got out, and it was, he wasn't under guard or anything. They, they got, the two of them got out, and they started walking toward the building. And you're expecting if he's a Viet Cong guerrilla, he's going to be under guard. Yeah. And then I realized as they get closer that the guy in the black pajamas was Wynn. And had he escaped? Or? He had just escaped that morning. <laughs> Talk about coincidences. You bought him a Coke, I'm sure. <laughs> of <Yeah>. course. <laughs> that, that's a joyful reunion. And uh, Did you know that he had been captured? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you yeah. were aware of his... Yeah, I okay. knew, knew all about that. But he just, he just escaped that morning. Wow. <laughs> wow, how fortunate. So then we were talking to each other and then the guys from inside came, hey we got it we got an intelligence guys debrief him and debrief him he was, okay okay and then they sent him on back to Saigon but then I lost contact with him there but uh, and I could could never figure out whether he escaped from Vietnam at the end of the war but uh, several years ago, I found out he did, in, in fact, escape with his family. They made it to Thailand first and then ended up in France. But I have not been able to find an address or telephone number for him to wow. touch. That's neat. Yeah. That's a really neat story, the way the universe brought you guys back together. Now, you mentioned you were a forward air controller. What does that entail? Okay, forward air controllers were guys who flew small airplanes in my case it was the 01 which is a little uh, two-seater Cessna 
And your job is to go out and find the enemy and then direct the fighter bombers to come in and attack them. So I, I got... Your scout. Yeah. I got pretty excited at the times, you know. That, that plane, uh, a little two-seater Cessna-type plane, doesn't have a lot of uh, defense or offense. No, there were... There were no, uh, there was no armor plate, for example, to protect the pilot. All you had to do, only, only protection you had in that regard was to wear a flak vest, you know. And in my case, I got smart pretty soon and took out the foam rubber seat cushion and replaced that with another <laughs> folded up flak vest. It's double protection. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as far as armament goes, we had our M16 and a 38 revolver. And then, but there were also four 2.75 inch rockets that had uh, uh, special warheads on them that produced a lot of smoke. That was for marking the targets. Okay. If you were lucky, you might actually hit something, but you know, they were designed for that. They were designed for you to put a mark on a target and then you could direct the fighter bombers in, you know, okay, 50 meters north of my smoke. Or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So don't hit my smoke because I wasn't. Fully accurate. Well, yeah. Go just ahead of that. Lucky, or, you might hit, but yeah, yeah. it's your luck if you did. <laughs> and people were, of course, gunning for you. Oh, yeah. Because you're the one that was aiming yeah. for them. Right. And you did that for how long? I was there for 11 months altogether. Okay. I got a, a month off for good behavior. <laughs> no, actually, I got a month off for, for flying more than 10 missions over north Vietnam. That was later when I moved up north to different area very high risk missions and okay so you earned a, a month off and then you came back and then i came back and, and well let me explain first that when i went to vietnam it was before the big build-up and the air force was asking begging for volunteers so the deal was if you volunteered and, and completed your tour successfully you could get your choice of assignments when you got back and I'd always wanted to fly fighters, so I volunteered. Didn't make my wife too happy, but quid pro quo, and okay. Yeah. So I. So at some point, you had had enough personal leave that you were able to find a wife. Well, yeah. When I first went to Moody, uh, mutual friends introduced me to my wife on a blind date. Okay. And we we hit it off and fell in love and got married and stayed married for fifty nine years until. She unfortunately died last year, but anyway, uh, yeah. So and so at this point, you guys had been together for a couple years. Yeah. Did you have any kids yet? We had a, a little boy, year and a half old. Okay. And uh, so now your wife's not happy that you've decided you're going to go take this mission so that you can fly fighters. Yeah. Well, yeah. She no, of course she was not happy about it, but anyway. That's what I did. And, we came, and it worked out. A few close calls, but never got wounded or anything, so I was lucky. But we came back, and I did get a fighter assignment and went to basic interceptor training in the F-102. It took six months, but then I got an F-106 assignment from there. And uh, we were, after training, we went to Painfield, Washington, which is just north of Seattle. Uh, we were there about 14 months, and the Air Force decided to close down that base, I think probably at the urging of Boeing because they had their 
47 assembly plant there, and they were getting ready to roll out their first prototype, and we were sort of in the way. It was a fighter squadron on the same airfield, you know. <laughs> Make room. Yeah, so anyway, we went to Hamilton Air Force Base, California, which is really a, one of the, the nicest bases in the Air Force. Just by luck, you know, just because the whole squadron, well, and the way it worked, uh, the guys at Payne Field who had already been to Vietnam got to go to Hamilton with the airplanes. The rest of them got F-4 assignments and went went to Vietnam. The guys at Hamilton who were flying the F-101, which was being replaced by our F-106s, if they had already been to Vietnam, they got to stay in transition to the F-106. Not, they also went to Vietnam to fly a force. You know? <laughs> so, we were in Hamilton a little bit over you know, three and a half years, I guess. And meanwhile, I'd heard about the SR-71. <laughs> kind of by accident. Yeah. Very top secret, I, I assume, at the it time. Was, yeah, Extremely. It was, very, it was very classified. Uh, but Air Defense Command's YF-12 test pilot, based out at Edwards, a guy named Jack Layton, had been an F-106 pilot before he flew the YF-12. And he wasn't getting enough time in the YF-12 to really stay current on his flying skills. You know. So he would come up to... Hamilton about once a month and fly the F-106 with us. And I was an instructor by then, so I flew with him quite a bit. And I was complaining one day about McNamara, Secretary of Defense McNamara, canceling the F-12 program so we were never going to have a follow-on interceptor, you know. And Jack says, well, if you really want to fly something like the F-12, check out the SR-71. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yeah. And he told me... <laughs> And you're flying fighters right now. Yeah, right. Talking about something that's definitely not a fighter. Right. But uh, so I checked into it, and it was difficult because the application procedure was in a classified supplement to the Strategic Air Command personnel manual, and I was in Air Defense Command. I finally found a guy at Air Defense Command headquarters personnel who knew enough about it to get the information for me. <laughs> so I applied, and they invited me up to uh, Beale Air Force Base for an interview. And that was the first time I ever actually saw the SR-71. Impressive. Yeah. Uh, unlike anything you'd ever seen before. Well, yeah. The shape was similar to an F-106, except bigger and meaner looking, you know. <laughs> yeah. Both Delta Wing airplanes. The F-106 was an impressive airplane, too, for that matter. It did Mach 2 and no problem. Now, this is a model of an SR-71 in front of us. Tell us a little bit about how it's built and the structure of it. Okay, well, the structure, if you saw it with the, the external panel removed, is basically, the fuselage is basically a long cylinder with fuel cells in it. And the, these chine areas, they are called, are added onto for two reasons. Number one, the shape blends into the uh, the uh, wing, which gives you more lift off the fuselage as well as the wing. And also the chine areas are where the, the cameras and other sensors were located. Dual purpose. Yeah. 
because it's a delta wing airplane it doesn't have uh, an elevator and ailerons like an airplane with wings and her tail and this has what's called elevons which are a combination elevator and uh, aileron on the trailing edge of the wings back here and the rudders move together the one it doesn't have separate uh, vertical stabilizer and, and rudder it's the whole piece. The whole piece moves, yeah. The other thing unique about it is these, uh, what are called the spikes here. They actually move aft up to 26 inches at high speed to capture the shock wave inside the engine inlet because the inlet, the engine has to have subsonic airflow. You cannot put supersonic airflow into a turbojet engine. Okay. So the spike in a system of bypass doors controls the shock wave in there, so it delivers subsonic air to the engine at high pressure. And subsonic means less than Mach 1. Right. Which is the speed of sound. Right. And then supersonic is above Mach 1, greater than the speed of sound. Yeah. So when you break that point, then those, those points come into the engine. Well, not, not right away, yeah, but it's a complicated program. But yeah, at high speed, they start retracting aft, and that in, co in combination with the bypass doors fixes the shock wave at a certain position in the, in the engine inlet there, but, and then that delivers subsonic airflow to the engine itself. And that turns it into a special kind of engine, essentially. Uh, yeah. But, you know, most supersonic airplanes have something similar, you know, either a ramp or a spike or something that moves. But this one is unique in that once you pass about Mach 2, you're getting into strange territory. That, <laughs> and uh, Unique things are happening in the air around you. Yeah. And uh, so the engine-inlet combination was designed as a unit so that at high speed it basically turns into a turbo ramjet. And what is a ramjet? A ramjet is a type of engine that's, that has no moving parts as such except, you know, fuel pump and that sort of thing. But it doesn't have compressor blades or rotor. That There's no, no spinning moving parts really. It depends on the compressed air at high speed going into the front of the engine. And that combines with the fuel to, to uh, create something similar to a rocket. And the compressed air, that just generates enough friction and heat and pressure that it can right. ignite or the, the fuel's already ignited. Yeah. So, yeah, but... Uh, so you're flying a giant rocket. You know, a ramjet has to be going about Mach 2 before it'll work. So. Okay. So, but this, in effect, turns into a turbo ramjet. That was a real genius of the engine-inlet combination. And the guy who later took over from... Kelly Johnson is director of the Skunk Works. Uh, ben Rich was the one primarily designing, uh, primarily responsible for designing that engine inlet combination. He was a really smart guy. Are there any other planes that use this same type of technology where it's both in, in the same unit like that? There are some experimental types you now that... that or talking about using that, and I'm not sure whether any of them are operational yet. But, wow. But this was designed, remember, back in the late 50s. This isn't new technology. Using slide rules and uh, 
genius, you know. They didn't have any computer simulations back in those days. Wow. <laughs> now, you said there was only a couple hundred people really even involved in the manufacture of it. This well, model was made by one gentleman who was a, a machinist on the project. Okay. And you said there was only a couple hundred? Yeah, I think there were maybe uh, a staff of maybe uh, 20 engineers and a couple of hundred production workers, and that's all. Wow. And the whole thing, of course, was very uh, secretive as to when it was being built. Um, there was actually a predecessor airplane to the SR-71 called the A-12. And there's one of those, I believe, outside the L.A. Science Center in the parking lot. I, I went there one time to see the Endeavour space shuttle, and I said, there's an SR-71, and one of the, the docents immediately said, no, that's an A-12. Yeah. It looks very similar. It looked almost identical, unless you really know the difference. It's hard. The, the A-12 was slightly smaller, used the same engines. It's about, as I recall, maybe four feet shorter, and, and lower uh, fuel capacity, and uh, it had just the pilot, no uh, navigator, RSO as we called them. And they could use either a radar or one big camera. And it just had the uh, had TACAN and the basic inertial navigation system. So the SR-71, in contrast, uh, had the pilot and the RSO, had the inertial nav system. And rather than being restricted to one camera or one radar, it could carry both radar and multiple cameras. Wow. And it carried about 16,000 pounds more fuel. So it's slightly bigger and heavier. Because of that, the A-12 would actually go a little bit higher and faster than the SR-71. Oh, interesting. But it didn't have the same sensor capability that we did, and then the navigation system wasn't nearly as good. So, uh, Was a prerequisite of flying the SR-71 or part of the training process flying the A-12? Oh, no. No? Completely. Okay. A-12 was operated by the CIA. Uh, when the SR-71 became operational, there was a lot of controversy about, you know, do we need both of them? And the decision was made, no, we don't need both of them. The SR-71 has more capability, so let's retire the A-12, put those in mothball. And then you also had the U-2, which yeah. was doing a lot of reconnaissance type work. Yeah. We still got the U-2. Yeah, it's the only one out of all of them that's still flying, isn't right. it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> the A-12 and SR-71 were initially conceived as a replacement for the U-2. <laughs> the U-2 is still flying. <laughs> and what did they bring to the table that the U-2 didn't? They brought to the table very high speed and, and very high altitude, so it made them invulnerable to the surface-to-air missiles that were operational at the time. And what was the, the prerequisites? How, what was the missile capabilities that they went to the drawing board and said, this well, is what the, we're against, this is what we primary, have to fight? The primary Soviet missile that they were concerned in with at the time was called the SA-2. And if you look at the capability of the SA-2 surface-to-air missile versus the SR-71, you'll see that the only way they could have a realistic chance of hitting us is if they launched the missile before we came into radar range. They would just have to know where you were going to be. It's guesswork, and, but they never figured it. So, 
An SR-71 was never hit by a missile. Wow. And how many were made? Do you know? The SR-71? Yeah. Uh, 32, I believe. Okay. How many of them did you fly? Did you fly the same one for many years? No, or? no we, flew, we flew all of them. Okay. Because after they were built, and they decided, well, you know, this is a very expensive program. We don't really need all that many. Let's, so what they did was rotate the airplanes in and out of uh, flyable storage, but kept all of them up to date with the latest modifications and everything. So at any one time, we'd have about a dozen airplanes operational. The rest of them would be in temporary storage. And they would rotate them in and out of storage, trying to keep the airframe time roughly the same on all of them. Okay. Like rotating your tires, rotating your planes. Yeah, right. And this is, again, way before, you know, our cell phones have way more computer technology than what oh, this yeah. had in it. Yeah, yeah. in fact... Uh, when the, the astro-inertial navigation system was developed, it had been initially designed to use on the uh, Skybolt uh, intermediate-range ballistic missile. Okay. And uh, because of that, it only had to go from one point to one other point, so it had very limited... Uh, the Earth is moving, but we know how long it's going to take, so move from yeah, A to B right. and... Okay. Yeah. So it only had four kilobytes of RAM. Wow. And the navigation computer on the, for the Skybolt said, well, they realized, you know, we've got to have more than that. But we're not talking about little chips. We're talking about huge, you know, cylinders or drums. Processing or units. Yeah. Remember, this is back in the late 50s we're talking about. Digital stuff wasn't even conceived yet, you know. The... Uh, in fact, the uh, <clears throat> Texas Instruments had developed the first, uh, uh, like the calculators and the the digital. No, I'm talking about the the basic process. What do you <laughs> like a microchip? Yeah, it was <laughs> just starting to be developed at that. Time. Yeah, silicone wafers and things. Yeah. All that was new. Yeah, that was brand new. So a major technological breakthrough was developed. 16 RAM uh, computer memory for the SR-71, <laughs> 16 kilobytes. That's so. That's less than we can even fathom. And anything yeah. in today's technology, nothing is that that little. Well, yeah, but you yeah consider that uh, the computer that sent the Apollo spacecraft to the moon, the moon and back, only had 32 kilobytes of RAM. And you're doing the rest in your head. Yeah. Or you have instruments to analog and manually help you do yeah. so. Well, if if you ever saw the movie uh, Apollo thirteen, you know when they have the problem and they're up there flipping switches on the, that's because the the computer could only understand machine language, you know, on or off, binary. Yeah. This is way before yeah, GPS or anything. Yeah, yeah all that stuff. And so you mentioned the, the inertial navigation system, Astro Inertial Navigation System, ANS, is that right? Yes. So where is that located on the plane? <laughs> it would be right behind the cockpit, and there's a uh, window right on top here for the uh, star tracking telescope to look through. So you've got a telescope yeah. sitting behind your cockpit right. telling you where to go. Well, it's, it's up, what it's doing is continuously updating the 
inertial mass system. And how does it do that? By tracking stars, even in the daytime. To uh, and it uses the computer and the, the uh, mass system uses thirty two stars in its catalog, the thirty two brightest. You know, okay, serious and going down from that. It has various filters in it, and of course, it's programmed to ignore planets and the sun and artificial satellites and that kind of stuff. Which there weren't very many at the time. Not, a, not at the time, no. And so it it picks out Sirius. You're flying at eighty thousand feet, and it can pick out a star even though it's daytime. It can do it while you when you taxi out of the hangar. It would lock onto a star just like that. Even before you're up in altitude. Oh, yeah. Wow. Well, of course. Yeah. Assuming it's a clear day. Yeah. Yeah. Day or night. Yeah. So the time it didn't work was when you were below the clouds. And of course, if you're cruising at 75 or 80,000 feet, there are very few clouds. You're well above the clouds. Yeah. It's what, 3% the Earth's atmosphere at that kind of altitude? Very, very thin. At 80,000 feet, yeah, you got roughly 3% of the pressure at sea level. Yeah. So there, there's not much up there. No. Although I have seen thunderstorms with tops above 80,000 feet. Really? Rare, but it, it can happen. Usually done close to the equator, you know, in the tropic zones. And so to get that high, there's a, there's a process. You don't just take off, pull the stick back, and go up. No. It, what is a normal mission like for you? Well, for safety reasons, we normally took off with about a half fuel load, and then we would climb up to 26,000 feet, go out and join up with the tanker, and top off the fuel. Immediately refueling. Immediately, yes. That was standard procedure. Now, the reason for that is, uh, well, two. Number one, the uh, limit speed on the tires. If you took off with full fuel, you're getting too close to the tire limit speed. It's too heavy. Yeah, and the heat builds up even though they're, what, 28 ply and 400 PSI of nitrogen in them. But, uh, yeah, so that was one reason. The other reason was if you took off of the full fuel load and lost an engine right after takeoff, you're probably not going to be able to control the airplane. Okay. I just don't have enough power on one engine to get through the speed there. you got to... A sizable gap between liftoff speed and minimum single engine control speed. So mitigate those risks by taking off with half fuel. Right. And then you immediately refuel. Yep. But you want to gun it. You yeah. this plane operates best yeah, so going fast. You top off the fuel tanks with and you, you which means you got eighty thousand pounds of fuel on board, which is roughly let's see. So the empty weight of the airplane was about 60,000 pounds. That's with no fuel on board. Very little bit, depending on what kind of sensors you had on board and that sort of thing, but roughly 60,000 pounds. But it carried 80,000 pounds of fuel. More weight in fuel than the, than the weight, weight of the plane. Of the wow. Yes. So we planned most of our refueling so that we would get to the tanker or land with about 10,000 pounds of fuel remaining. So you got to gross weight of about 70,000 pounds. So refueling got very tricky because you doubled your gross weight during the air refueling. So by the time you got full of fuel, the tanker is going as fast as he can go, and you're going as slow as you can. You guys have both maxed out in opposite directions. Right. 
So it's very sensitive. You know, you got to be very careful backing off from the tanker and then starting your acceleration there because any abrupt control movements, you might get it into a stall and pitch up condition. And does this refuel at the nose, like the the male female adapter, like you'll see in movies, or or how do you? No, what's the refueling it, process? The receptacle up there behind the cockpit, the door that opens up, and and use a system of director lights on the bottom of the tanker to to guide you into the proper position. Because you can't turn around and look and see, so no, you're looking no. just straight forward. Right. And then when you get in the proper position, then the boom operator extends the boom and plugs it in, and, and from then on the director lights are automatic to keep you in the proper position for the reveal. Wow. How long was that process? Uh, the av- average refueling, uh, we allowed 20 minutes. You could usually do it a little bit faster than that, but the object was to leave the tanker at the end of the refueling track with full fuel. That's the way the missions were planned so that you, you know, you go from there to the, in other words, you didn't try to fill up fast and leave early. You wanted to go right to the end of the track and leave that with full fuel. Maximize your next jump, your next distance. Yeah. And then after you refuel, you go now you, you're, you've been going as slow as you possibly could. So now your object is to go supersonic. And the airplane is very sluggish at max speed and low, or I mean at max weight and low speed. So you've got to be very careful there transitioning through the... And we, if it was a, a hot day at altitude, we'd sometimes use a climb and descent where you'd light the afterburners, climb up to about 31,000 feet, and then do a zero-G maneuver over to go through the transonic region to get supersonic. Nose down. And then then start your actual climb. Or you could just go straight ahead, you know, in normal temperatures, you go straight ahead. But So you're kind of letting gravity help help you accelerate oh, a little yeah, more. Using a climb descent thing. Because you got a very high drag in the transonic region, you know, between about 0.9 and 1.1 Mach. Is that a pretty volatile moment? Is that like max Q on the space shuttle launches and, well, and no, stuff? Or? Not that, but it's just that you you got very high drag. And <coughs> excuse me. And you want to get through that region as fast as possible so you can start your acceleration. And we would normally climb, <coughs> excuse me, then at uh, 450 knots, Equivalent airspeed. Now, I won't go into the difference between indicated, calibrated, equivalent, and true, but yeah, we're using the equivalent <laughs> airspeed until you get to 2.6 Mach, and then what we call a keys bleed schedule, bleeding off equivalent, not equivalent airspeed gradually as the Mach state keeps increasing. And Mach is is not just speed, but it's also altitude, correct? No, there's no. there's a correlation? or Well, the only correlation is that Mach 1 is faster at sea level than it would be at 80,000 feet. Okay. Because of air yeah. density and, okay. But generally, uh, for most missions, our initial level off would be at, at Mach 3 at about 74,000 feet. It's getting up there a little bit. And then... If you're cruising at Mach 3, then you you bring the throttles back to to just about minimum afterburner and do a cruise climb as you burn down fuel, maintaining the same Mach. Uh, if you're 
if you're going into a threat area, you'd go right out. Mach 3.2 was the normal limit, but if we were going into a threat area, you would level off at say 3.17 or 3.18 to give you a little bit of leeway there. And, uh, and that 80,000 pounds of fuel, you're you're like my F-150. You're getting about 17 miles per gallon, or, or how how you doing on well, fuel economy there? Fuel economy. That's an interesting subject. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's the only airplane I know that gets maximum range at maximum speed. The faster you go, the more efficient it gets. Interesting. For example, <clears throat> I looked this up in the performance charts one day. At 80,000 feet, at average weight, at Mach 3.2, you're getting about 55 nautical miles per 1,000 pounds of fuel. Holy cow. If you have a malfunction and have to go home subsonic, say at 0. 0.9 at 30,000 feet, you're only getting about 30 nautical miles per 1,000. You better find a place to land. Yeah, exactly. So there were a few missions where if we couldn't go max speed, we couldn't make it. Didn't have the range. And what kind of range are we talking we're talking roughly 2,500 to 3,000 miles between refuelings. And what's the longest mission you've done, including refuelings? The longest mission I flew was from the U.S. to the Mideast and back during the uh, Yom Kippur War in 1973. <laughs> Tell us about that. Like time and, and what, what was oh, this? Yeah. When, that, when that war broke out, we already had a, an agreement with the British to allow us to operate out of England if in just such a uh, situation. Well, our, so that was the plan. We we're going to head to Milton Hall, England, which is uh, an RAF base a few miles east of Cambridge, and set up an operation there. They already scouted it out, and so we did you know, the facility. It's got a runway and everything that's appropriate for you. Everything we need. So our advanced party with the wing commander landed there in a KC-135 to set up the operation. And the RAF base commander met the airplane and says, sorry, Colonel, but you're not welcome. Uh, Parliament, I guess it was Parliament, I don't know, know who exactly. I'm we'll blame it on the Queen. Got cold feet and decided, well, if we let those Yankees operate out of here for that mission, the Arabs are going to cut off our oil, so we better not do that. So it was a political decision, yeah. Political decision. So they turned around and headed back to the U.S., formulating a new plan en route. So they said they knew that there was an SR-71 up at uh, Griffiths Air Force Base in New York doing some cold weather tests. So we'll just use that for a cover and we'll head for there and set up our operation there. So they did. And we flew uh, four and a half missions out of there, round trip to Middle East and back, over Israel and, yeah. You know, Egypt, Israel, Syria, and so forth. And then the weather started getting nasty, so they, they I guess it was the fifth mission, they took off from Griffiths Air Force Base in New York, but meanwhile we had shifted the operation down to Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina. So they landed back there, and then we flew four more missions out of there, nine total. And... Uh, and I flew one of them out of Seymour Johnson 
and we took off at midnight, refueled just off the coast, refueled again off the Azores, and then once in the Mediterranean, uh, fairly close to Libya, in fact. So you're like Outer Banks, Portugal, Libya. And then back to Libya for another, and then off the Azores again, and, and then back. So yeah, it was five refuelings total. It was roughly 15,000 miles in 10 hours. 10 hours. Yeah. We landed back at Seymour. We took off at midnight and landed back at Seymour Johnson at 10 o'clock in the morning. So your legs are asleep after that. You've been in the driver's seat for a little while. Yeah, well, that that's, uh, I should mention there that the, SR-71 is the only airplane I've ever flown that never gave the pilot an opportunity to sit back and relax. Active control the whole time. Yeah. And it took total concentration. You're either going supersonic or you're refueling, you know, or going into refuel or accelerating back from the refuel. Now you're taking pictures when you get over and you've got a few different cameras and and sensors and systems. Several different cameras. Where are those at on the plane? There's one in the nose, and then the others, as I mentioned, are in the chine areas back here. The nose was completely interchangeable. You could have radar or an optical bar camera. The whole nose would... So depending on the mission requirements, they would swap that out beforehand. The optical bar camera was an interesting camera. It had a rotating lens, and it would photograph horizon to horizon on every sweep. And you could photo map roughly 100,000 square miles in an hour with that camera in pretty high resolution. But uh, our primary uh, uh, point objective cameras uh, were called the, uh, see, what was it? Anyway, it was a, a camera that had a 48-inch focal length. And resolution specifications call for six inches from 80,000 feet. And if it was operating, if everything was just right, you know, good atmospheric conditions, a nice stable platform and so forth, you could do much better than that. I've seen pictures where you could pick out golf balls on the green from 80,000 feet. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And and beating a dead horse, we're still talking pre-digital. This is oh, yeah, film. This, this is film. This is actually right. film canisters. Yeah, okay, I remember the name of the camera. It's the technical objective camera. That was a primary point objective camera. Uh, two of them, one on each side. And these are large film. This isn't yeah, like... This is nine-inch wide film and roughly a mile of film on each camera. Add that to the weight on top of the 60,000 yeah. of the plane, the 80,000 right. of the fuel. Well, no, that that's included. Okay, sixty thousand. I was talking. About. Yeah, a so, mile of film. So, and there at Kadena Air Base during the, in Okinawa during the Vietnam War, we had uh, a processing uh, facility right there. So we could have hard copy prints en route back to the commanders in Vietnam within a few hours after we went over the target in North Vietnam. And are you controlling the cameras? Are they manually? They they could be controlled manually in an emergency. Normally they were controlled by the the master computer. They were all programmed in, you know, we're going to 
we get this and this and this because you know if the if the computer failed the RSO could probably photograph the primary objectives but it's it's too much to try to get the whole thing you know. and your your RSO that's is that recon- reconnaissance Constant systems officer he's a combination navigator uh, electronic countermeasures operator sensor operator and he didn't have flight controls in the back seat, but he was in an emergency. He'd get out his checklist and make sure you're doing the right thing. So he's not a full backup plot pilot. No, because there were no flight controls yeah. in the back seat. Okay. Yeah, except in a trainer. But yeah, we had two of those. But. So you've mapped up to 100,000 square miles in an hour. You're flying over somewhere like the Middle East or, or North Vietnam. You land and. They just come out with a forklift and, and get this film or what? Well, not a forklift. Yeah, but they got special sense. Before you even finish shutting down, they're downloading the cameras and taking them into the shop to get, take the film out and rush them over to the processing facility. And get that data. Yeah, so the, you know, whoever was doing the planning in, in Saigon, for example, would have the film showing the, what happened that day and to use in planning the missions for the next day. Do the the people on the ground do they know you've flown over? Are there sensors? Are they hearing a sonic boom? Is oh, there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. But the higher you are, of course, the, the more muted and muffled that is. Yeah. If in fact, if if it's a cloudy day, you probably won't even hear it. And they might have a radar or something that can ping that you were there, but they don't. Well, yeah, they, they, they could pick us up on radar. We could, you know, we had sensors in the cockpit showing being looked at by radar and other warnings, you know, they show that uh, they changed the mode of the radar, so they're trying to launch a missile, and you get another warning if they actually, if they actually launched one. And had have you ever had one launched at you? Yeah, I think so, but we never <laughs> saw it, so I can't confirm. You were moving pretty quick. We, we got all the signals saying, yeah, they're, they're shooting at us. But, yeah. Now, so there, the odds of the plane getting hit, and we know it never did. Yeah. But the odds were slim to none. Right. Other instances, if there was a failure, what was the the escape procedure? Oh, what do you mean by escape? You mean how how do you get out safely? Oh, how do you bail out of the airplane? Yeah. Well, a lot of people assumed it was some kind of a capsule, but it was not. It was just an ejection seat. We depended on our pressure suits to protect us in that case and your your suit is a pressure suit it's just like a, yeah, an astronaut suit it, yeah, it has its own similar. life support systems and oh yeah yeah we wore those almost every flight and so you would be able to feasibly eject at these high altitudes and survive uh there was there never was an ejection per se at high altitude although on one of the early test flights with a Lockheed test crew, the airplane actually disintegrated at Mach 3.18. They were flying a test mission with uh, the center of gravity after the normal limit deliberately to see what would happen. And they found out the hard way. As they went into a turn, they got what's called an unstart on the inboard engine and the turn. By that, I mean the the inlet malfunction and expel the shockwave and it causes a violent yaw which is corrected by 
stability augmentation system and the rudders and so forth. But anyway, it was enough with that F center of gravity to make the airplane go into a pitch up. And it's not meant to take that kind of pressure no, at that. It, it actually came apart, just explosive. Wow. You know, disintegration at, at 3.18 Mach. The pilot survived, fortunately, but the backseater was killed. And that's the only fatality, that's that's the only death that's connected the, to this that plane. That's the only fatality in an SR-71, yes. Had a couple of them in the A-12, but in the SR-71, there was never an Air Force crew member killed. Wow, that's rare. A Lockheed test engineer in the backseat broke his neck in the violent breakup of the airplane. But the pilot survived, in fact, was flying again 10 days later. And so his system was able to save him. His suit ejected. His pressure suit worked. There's Is there like a small chute to help you? Is, he's spinning out of control now, I assume, well, now too. If in an ejection, yes, there's a small stabilizing chute on the ejection seat that keeps it from tumbling and everything. So you get down to 15,000 feet, and then the system automatically opens the seat belt, expels you from the seat, and opens your parachute. Okay. Then you float down to safety. But uh, Bill Weaver, the Lockheed test pilot who survived this encounter, was not in his ejection seat. He was actually ripped out of the seat, tore you know heavy duty nylon lap belt about four inches and just ripped that right out of the seat. Wow! Just free falling through space, but still had his parachute and it opened automatically at fifteen thousand. It still worked. Yeah. Wow. And so there was testing. There was live theater of operations missions over Vietnam, over the Middle East, over various other places. other areas around the world. Yeah. But you also got to test and, and have some fun yourself. You you were able to take this plane on on a closed loop course. Is that what it's called? Oh yeah. Well, back in nineteen seventy six, uh, Senator Goldwater, you remember him. Prescott loves him. He was a big supporter of the Air Force, and he's, he was pressuring the Air Force to do something spectacular to help celebrate the bicentennial. And the first thought was, let's do a around-the-world, nonstop, see how fast we can do it. And you've got the capabilities with enough refuelings. Yeah, that was the key, with enough refuelings. Well, the, the plan was to take off from Beale Air Force Base, head west, uh, just before sunset and gradually catch the sun as you went around so that you fly the whole mission in daylight. Now, okay, let's let's talk about that for just a second. You can beat the sun. Yeah, because if you, you know, in rough figures, the sun moves over the surface of the earth at about 1,000 miles an hour. And you're able to double that. And we can go twice as fast as that. Yeah, so we could take off, say, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and get back <laughs> to Beale Air Force Base after we went around the world at about 10 o'clock the next morning in daylight the whole time. <laughs> and so they're, they're planning this hypothetical mission right. to take off at sunset and beat the sun home on the right. other side. Yeah. <laughs> And, yeah, it was planned for 16 hours and 20 minutes. The problem was it was going to take almost our entire fleet of specialized tankers that we had for the SR-71 
to deploy them around the world to various spots to do the, uh, the, the mission and get the tankers back home. It's going to take roughly a 100 total sorties of KC-135s. <laughs> and, and some of these could be over areas that are still... Well, no, disputed, or you're going to have a unique route, but you don't want to more or less follow the equator. Okay, yeah, avoiding. You don't want to monopolize time. all of your equipment. <laughs> so, Strategic Air Command thought it was a great plan. It'll show our global reach, you know, and so forth. The headquarters Air Force didn't think so much of it. It's ridiculous to use that many tanker sorties for one flight. Come up with something cheaper. <laughs> so we did. Alternate plan was to set the the straight line speed record, the sustained altitude record, and the closed course speed record. And the U.S. already held the straight line speed record and the altitude record. They've been set by the YF-12, which was the prototype interceptor version of the same airplane. Okay. Several years earlier, but the Russians held the closed course speed record. And I was the senior pilot of the guys who were going to fly these missions, so I got to choose which one. I said, I want the closed course record because that's the one the Russians. You want to take that. (laughs) Yeah. And their their record at the time was roughly 1,850 miles an hour, something like that. So uh, we managed to break it with a... Handy margin, 2,092 miles an hour for a 1,000-kilometer close course. And where was that course? It started and ended over Edwards Air Force Base. But it was rough, uh, roughly teardrop shape out to the east. In fact, it came fairly close to uh, Prescott and Kingman. Flying right over northern Arizona. Yeah, and the turn. It was a constant 45-degree bank around the turn. And the... Uh, the rules for setting records like that say so you can't descend to gain airspeed. You know, you got to hold a constant altitude or climb. So it was easier to climb, so that's what we did. You climbed. We climbed all the way around the course. <laughs> and you did 1,000 kilometers. Yeah. At a, a an 2,092. Average, an average speed of 2,092 miles an hour. Yeah. Wow. And the straight shot record is just a little bit more than that in yeah, speed. it's... it's uh, I can't remember what exactly what it is. You may have it on your... 2193? Yeah, okay, so about 100 miles an hour faster. The following day? Yeah. Uh, you guys made a week do, of it. The plan was to do it all the same day using the same airplane. But on our... We were doing the first one, the close course record, and we had a problem with the right engine. The exhaust nozzle controller for the afterburner was not operating properly, and we kept having to back off on the speed as we went around because we figured it was due to heat buildup. We actually started to enter the course at 3.3 Mach, which is above the normal limit, but we were allowed to go to 3.3, you know, if we had a good reason for it, like shooting missiles at you or something. <laughs> not, so not just breaking so records? We started at 3.3, <laughs> but we kept backing off on the speed, trying to keep that uh, engine operating. And we were at 3.2 as we passed over Edwards. And at just that time, the the afterburner blew out on the right engine. So we went back to Beale and landed and told them about the problem. Uh, They 
Sounded well. well let's try it anyway, because we were at max speed for over 17 minutes, and the other guys, well, it won't take that long. Maybe it'll work okay. Well, they tried it, and it didn't. So they changed the engine that night and went back and did it again the next day. Actually, they still didn't get a different plane. They still used no, the same plane. Used, uh, that plane and another one. Wow. They decided to use two different airplanes, one for the speed record and one for the uh, altitude record. And the altitude record, 85,068 feet. Yeah, and that's that's in straight and level flight. No sustain. That's not in a zoom. Okay, so you you've been that high. Oh yeah, I've been a little bit higher, in fact. And eighty five thousand feet was supposed to be our maximum altitude. It's for safety reasons. And you've teased the the barrier. Yeah. Well, one day when we got all our missile warnings uh, over North Vietnam, uh, the procedure if you if uh, they launched the SAM was just to accelerate and climb. We were already somewhere around 80,000 feet at about 3.18 Mach, I think. So when we got all the warning lights on, I just eased th the throttles up to maximum afterburner and raised the nose a little bit. And instead of watching the instruments like I should have been doing, I'm looking outside to see if I could see missiles, you know, and finally my back seater says, Pat, where are we going? So we, oh, <laughs> we were passing 87,000 feet at 3.37 Mach and still accelerating. I said, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> let off a little bit. These back throttles to the minimum afterburn and let us settle back down into their normal operating range there. <laughs> what do you see at 87,000 feet? What, is, what does your view look like? Well, anytime you're above about 60,000 feet, you can actually see the curvature of the Earth. But the higher you go, the darker the sky gets. So you're looking at the blackness of space. Well, more or less, but you're looking, you know, you're not looking directly up unless you're in a turn. You can look up, but yeah. And you can see the curve of the earth around the, you. You can see the curvature of the earth. So, What's the distance that you can see on, on the ground at that point? Uh, I would guess somewhere between four and 500 miles. Wow. Yeah. Is that is that a a spiritual moment? You know, to to it, take all that in. I'm sure in it, the moment you're not thinking it about is, that. Sort of. Yeah. You're thinking you're I gotta busy, I gotta let off. Flying the airplane, but uh, yeah, I think the first time it really hit me about how fast we were really going is when we were. I think it was just on a training mission out of Beale Air Force Base at night, and we're heading out over the Pacific after sunset, and I'm watching the sun rise in the west. At about the same speed it normally comes up in the east, you know. And it, all of a sudden it hit me, you know, we are really going fast. <laughs> <laughs> Doing something no human's ever done, really, at that point. And, well, and still has it. astronauts. Astronauts, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it, yeah, when it sinks in, uh, how fast you're really going, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you don't, <coughs> excuse me, you don't <coughs> normally get a sensation of speed up there like you would, say, you know, at 100 feet. You don't have the reference point of the yeah. ground flying right. by you. Yeah. Also lucky one day, also on a training mission, I'd be able to head down the coast, and you could actually see the Terminator moving over the surface of the Earth. The dark and the light. But the difference between the dark and you know, dark on the east side and the light on the west side. 
Wow. That's an impressive sight, too. Not, not many get to see that. So you flew the SR-71 and, and a dozen other fighters and jets and, and planes yeah. leading up to this point. Where did it take you? Where did it take me? Where did you go after that? Well, <clears throat> I retired from the Air Force in 1985, and I just for personal reasons. So it was time to devote my attention to the family instead of, instead of the Air Force, So, and I was lucky I got uh, a job as a pilot with uh, a startup airline in Las Vegas called Sunworld. They started up about the same time America West did, I think. But America, and we were competing on a lot of the same routes. Uh, unfortunately for us, America West had deeper pockets and they outlasted <laughs> us. So, Sunworld uh, went out of business in late. 1988, but I was very lucky. I got hired by Alaska Airlines to be a pilot, and at the time, I was the oldest pilot they'd ever hired. The the major airlines are just starting to hire older pilots at about that time. You've got a little bit of experience. You can bring something to the table. Yeah. So anyway, so I was lucky. I got to spend a little over 10 years with Alaska Airlines and enjoyed that very much until I had to retire at age 60, which was the FAA rule at that time. And that's for commercial flight? Yeah. Do you still hold a, an active license? You know, I was not active, but all I would need to do to get it active is to take a current physical and and do what you call a, a BFR, a biennial flight review. You know, go out with an instructor and prove you can still fly. Show them you know what, what you're doing. Yeah. When was the last time that you flew? Yeah, probably about... Five years ago. Yeah. Just small planes around here? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, yeah, I would like to have my own airplane, but it's very expensive. That's costly. Yeah. That's costly. Yeah. And at age 83, I'm not sure it would be a good idea anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this is all so, so interesting. It's it's amazing the the technology of this plane given is, the era where it came from, right. and you had a a true front row seat for operating yeah. it, but understanding where it came from and and how it developed and where it went. Yeah, well, you know, along that line, it, it's funny that back in those days uh, there was still serious attention. What they call need to know. Mm-hmm. If you didn't need to know something, you, even if you had the proper clearances, you didn't find you out. Didn't. There were a lot of things about the SR seventy one I didn't find out until just a few years ago when it all became declassified. Okay. Now, when did when did the Air Force stop flying the plane? After uh, you retired? Yeah, it was. Uh, they officially retired it the first time in nineteen ninety. And then Congress put a lot of pressure on them to bring it back, and it did for a couple of years, but uh, never flew an operational mission. They finally retired it for good in 1994, I think. And then NASA continued operating NASA one. NASA continued to operate a couple of them for various test programs until October 99 was the last, last actual flight of an SR-71. 
there there's one down at the Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson. Yeah. Is that one that you have operated? No. That one down there is kind of unique because it was kept at Palmdale at the Lockheed facility to use for test purposes for its whole uh, career. It never actually flew an operational mission. Okay. Have you been able to visit other ones that you have yeah. actually piloted? Yeah. Sure. Where Where are some of those located at? Well, let's see. There's one sitting on a stand outside Beale, and there's one at uh, what used to be Castle Air Force Base down there at Merced. There's one at uh, uh, McMinnville, Oregon, at a museum up there. There's one in Kalamazoo, Michigan. There's you know, there's scattered various museums around the country, and I've flown almost all of them except that one at, at uh, Tucson. In Tucson. Yeah. Wow. Because, like I said, they rotated airplanes in and out of storage every year. So you got a good grasp on most of them. Almost all of them, yeah. And from when you first started flying the SR-71 till when they retired it, you said as they rotated them in and out, they would do any technological updates and things. Is it quite a bit different from what it originally was, or is it all mostly the same? There's one major improvement that was put on after I stopped flying the airplane called uh, DAFIX, which stands for Digital Automatic Flight and Inlet Control System. Early on, and when I was flying the airplane, what we called unstarts were fairly common, and they were really get your attention. And uh, because it was just a hydroelectric mechanical system that controlled the inlets in the early days, but they put on this digital system, which uh, made much faster and more precise corrections to keep it operating properly. It almost did away with unstarts. Okay. So that's a nice update. Oh, yeah. That was, that Everybody was, appreciated that, major, that one. That was the only major update to the airframe engine that I know about. Yeah. Now, we talked about that they retired it, and they're still operating the U-2. Yeah. I, I have heard that there was talk of an SR-72 or some sort of predecessor, or I'm, I'm sorry, successor to it. And the Top Gun movie, the new one that just came out, it's well, reignited this conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit far-fetched. With far-fetched scenes of him going Mach 10. Well, no, the far-fetched part of it was he survived the thing coming apart in Mach 10. <laughs> <laughs> Even Tom Cruise can't survive that one. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> was there, there was actually, wasn't there a successor model built? No, there was a, a, a an SR-72 proposed by Lockheed, as far as I know, it never got funded and no prototype okay. was ever, but it was going to be an unmanned airplane. One of the first drone ideas. Okay. Which we do a lot of that now. Yeah, but the propulsion system was was just uh, the next step of what was in the SR, except it was going to use two different engines. It was going to use one engine, you know, to get it up to Mach 3 or, or 2.5 or whatever, and then a pure ramjet was going to take off after that. Okay. And then after that, you're going to the moon. Yeah. Well, I think it was proposed for Mach 6, not Mach 10. But yeah, that's still pretty quick. <laughs> no, what you got to realize is the faster you go, the hotter it gets. So you start running the limitations of, for materials and what can withstand that kind of heat. And and the exterior of this plane, that, that that's speed why and the friction. The 71 was primarily titanium. 
Not aluminum. What temperature was it operating at? Uh, the Your skin temperature. Skin temperature at, at 3.2 Mach could be anywhere from 600 to 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, depending on what part of the airplane you're talking about. So you've got some very unique materials in the skins. Yeah. You've got very thick and special windows. Yeah. And your equipment in general just has to be able to survive, not just the vib- well, yeah. the vibrations, the speed, the inertia, but also temperatures too. Yeah. Temperature was the main problem, in fact. That was, that was always the main problem in getting the airplane to work. It required special fuel, special engine oil, special hydraulic fluid. And then keeping a human alive inside. Yeah. So even if we were to come up with successors to this plane that are unmanned yeah you most likely will continue to hold these records well and and the plane will hold these records for well potentially for man, forever for man maybe yeah yeah because anything else is, is often well, you know obviously the x-15 went a lot faster and higher but it was a rocket for turbojet airplanes i don't think anything will ever beat the sr-71 wow that's pretty neat yeah that's pretty neat I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come and, and well, talk to us. It was us fun and, talking about it. I enjoy talking about the airplane. It was a highlight of my Air Force career, obviously. We've got a Wings Out West air show coming to Prescott. I, I don't think they're going to have an SR-71 this year, but but it's always fun to see the planes flying. And uh, As far as I know, there's no capability of putting an SR-71 back in the air now. Yeah. Because when they when NASA finally retired the airplane, it was shortly after that scandal about some uh, somebody was supplying F-14 parts to Iran in spite of the embargo. Okay. So I guess it was Secretary of Defense ordered all spares to be destroyed. So that's what they did. Okay. All the spare parts for the SR-71 and ran them through a big industrial shredder. They're, they're museums now. Yeah, so only the airplanes you see in museums, uh, there are a couple of them that could they're in flying condition, but they got no support equipment to do it with. No backup. Yeah. And even the refueling missions, all of that stuff is unique to this plane. Well, the thing that was unique about it was the KC-135s that we use. We call KC-135Q models. And what was unique about them was they could isolate our special fuel. The, the KC-135 could operate on that fuel, but not for takeoff or landing because the fuel had such a fly, high flash point that it could not be ignited with a normal jet engine igniter plugs. We had to use a chemical ignition system. This, uh, Another really important safety feature. Yeah, so and this chemical ignition system uh, used a chemical called triethylborane which ignites on contact with the air. Very dangerous stuff. So every time you went from off to idle or let the afterburn, it, it fired a shot of that into the combustion chamber to light the fuel. That took care of business. Yeah. But for that reason, the KC-135s could cruise on JP-7, which was our fuel, but they didn't dare try to take off or land because if we had a, an engine problem, there's no way to restart it on JP-7. Yeah. Wow. And and it took off. You you would start the engines before you even left the hangar. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'd start up. We would normally uh, 
show up at the airplane about 45 minutes before takeoff time. By then, we were already in our pressure suits. And you get in the airplane, and you had what we call a buddy crew, you know, another pilot in RSO. You go out and, and pre-flight the airplane before we got there because you can't do that in a pressure suit. So we would just get in the cockpit, you know, and you strapped in and go through all of the checks in there and start up the engine and complete the pre-flight checklist. But what, your exterior checklist was already completed by your buddy crew? Right. Okay. Yeah, you can't do that when you wear a pressure suit. You're like the Michelin man. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the whole process was very involved and very... Technical, but we had it down to a science, and it worked, worked very well by the time I got there. Amazing piece of equipment, uh, amazing time in our our country and our world's history, oh, and yeah. so neat that you got to be a part of it. Yeah, there was. And then, uh, after I left Beale the first time, which was December seventy eight, and I went back in. Uh, June of 82 to be the wing deputy commander for operations. So I didn't get to fly the, the SR-71 then, but I was in, responsible for coordinating the worldwide operations of it and the U-2 and our supporting tankers. You know. Oh, wow. And there was quite a bit of stuff still happening around oh, the world yeah. at that time. Oh, yeah. This is pre-collapse of the Soviet Union. There's a lot. We had... Various detachments spread all around the world. So at any time of the day, you probably had a mission going somewhere. Yeah. So, in fact, we had U-2. Yeah. Just more U-2 flights than SR-71 flights at that time. That time we had two primary SR-71 operations, one at Kadena Air Base, Okinawa, and the other one was at Melton Hall, England. Okay. We did finally get to Melton They finally let you in? Yeah. Parliament okayed that. Yeah, after the Mideast War was over. <laughs> after they secured their fuel, their oil. <laughs> I think the Arabs actually cut off their fuel at one point anyway, but <laughs> not because we were operating out of there. <laughs> We got along fine with the Brits. They're, they're good allies. Did they ever have a pilot that flew the SR-71? Uh, no, they did have U-2 pilots. Okay. In fact, uh, at uh, Duxford, England, which is an airfield just south of Cambridge, there is an SR-71 on display. It's the only one outside the U.S. Interesting. Yeah. They got a U-2 in there also. Good partners for a long time. Yeah. In fact, yeah, it's called the the American Air Museum in Britain. It's just one part of the the museum. There is this huge hangar that's got all American airplanes in there. Mainly, mainly American airplanes that have operated out of England. Is there any American or other made plane that you wish you would have had the opportunity to fly? One that just stands out in your mind is that was a really neat plane. Well, yeah, one of them that I wished I. It could fly. I never had a chance to. It was the F-104. That was that one I was intrigued. You were looking forward to that one. Yeah, but it, it was uh, the F-106. Actually, it was the last single-engine airplane to hold the absolute speed record. Okay. 
but rumor has it the F-104 was actually a little bit faster. So that's what the F-104 pilots will tell you. Anyway. <laughs> Did you ever have the opportunity to interact with any other uh, pilots of, of fame, like a, a Chuck Yeager or somebody of that nature? Um, I've met Chuck Yeager, but yeah, he he lived not too far away from Beale Air Force Base, okay, or Grass Valley, and he actually came down and got a flight in the Sur seventy one one time. First time he'd ever been to Mach three. <laughs> from Mach one to Mach three. Yeah, well, he'd flown Mach two, I think, and F one hundred fours or whatever, but. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. This has been been amazing, and I, I really appreciate your time and, and taking the opportunity to do this with us. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Like I said, I like talking about the airplane. I'm still impressed with the genius of the people who designed and built it. They had to invent new manufacturing techniques. Nobody ever worked with titanium on that scale before. And now they can 3D print with it. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about something that happened a long time ago, but it's still an impressive airplane. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Well, Colonel Pat Bledsoe, thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.